Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of West New York Brews. My name is Scott Panfil, and I am a home brewer just outside of Buffalo, New York. Welcome, welcome, welcome. On this show, we talk about Buffalo beer, or we talk about brewing, and we talk to Buffalo brewers to do it, and this is one of those episodes. We're talking about New England IPA with Drew Harden, who was just on episode 37 as well, talking about kettle sours. But he is phenomenal to listen to because he knows what he's talking about and he's very well spoken about it. And you can probably tell while he's talking that I am feverishly taking notes or looking up something that he just said that I don't understand because most of the time it takes me a couple of seconds to get back into the conversation or you'll hear some uh, furious typing there. So Drew is a fountain of knowledge. Uh, if you if you know Drew Harden, you know that to be true. If you don't know Drew Harden, go introduce yourself to him and ask him a question and see see what you get out of him. If you know Drew, you know that to be true. Oh, I didn't mean that to rhyme. And it did. And I'm so sorry. So we are going to get into the episode in just a second. As I get through the uh, housekeeping stuff here on episode 42, I mentioned a Patreon page, which I realize now that I never actually made live. So look for the Patreon page. Uh, Don't worry about it for right now. I'll tweet it out. If you're not already following us, it's at WNYBrews on Twitter. And that's where I spend most of my time is on Twitter. If you're following on Facebook or on the email list, I appreciate it. Um, And I'm sorry. I'm on Twitter most of the time. Uh, Come check me out on Twitter and let's have a conversation. Let's talk. Let's have some beers together. And let's get into this interview with Drew. So how have you been? Oh, not too shabby. Not too shabby. Busy, busy day. Didn't really work at the brewery today, but Went around, had some consult work for Sato, dealing with some metal fabricators and uh, things like that for brew stands and nice. mounting of pumps and such. I spread myself absolutely thin. I do a lot of stuff, but you put me to shame. You you are out there. Uh, I have a feeling that if I stop working as much as I will, I will die. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of like the speed mentality. If I go below 80 miles per hour, then nice. I explode. Something like that. <laughs> Good. Then you you can be, I'll be the Sandra Bullock for sure. You can be Keanu. Awesome. I've been told I look like Keanu sometimes when I'm clean shaped. <laughs> uh, I could see that. So uh, what what else you got going on right now? You got Sato going on? Uh, yeah, just uh, I kind of do their consulting thing right now. Uh, things are going really well with that. Um, we've just got our floor drains and our floor leveled and epoxied, or I should say not leveled, uh, planed and epoxied. Nice. Uh, so that's in place. All of our hot side equipment are in for the most part, minus, you know, parts and pieces, just extraneous things. But the kettles are all in, uh, HLT's in, mesh tons in. Uh, we got our three, three barrel unit tanks are all in our chillers in our cold packages in. Uh, so right now we were just finished up the floor. Uh, they just installed the uh, panel mount. Uh, so the panel is mounted and I believe there's uh, live, uh, live power to the panel at the moment, but obviously cool. we haven't hooked it up to any of its support equipment yet. So I don't believe it's fully live, but it's there. <laughs> well, that's coming along pretty quick. Uh, they are doing a great job. They are really moving at a breakneck speed uh, when it, when, as far as construction is concerned, uh, especially with the rest of the restaurant and the kitchen uh, and the bar in the back end. Uh, it's moving along very, very quickly. Um, I give those guys a lot of props because 
a lot of times you're slowed down and you're, you're usually looking at a release date or a, an opening date and everyone kind of pushes that back six months. <laughs> and so, so when these guys are giving me, you know, timetables and things like that, I, I really kind of hold them to a lot of it or at least very close to a lot of it uh, because they are moving so quickly, which is refreshing, but yeah. you know, it also has, it has its problems too. Cause you know, sometimes you're, you're pedaling faster than the bike can move. So yeah, understandable. I wanted to talk about New England IPAs. Are you familiar? Sure, the, <laughs> yes. Uh, I've made a few. They are all the rage. It is the most popular style that is not recognized. I did a, a bunch of research before I tried to go and, and make my own. Yeah. Uh, and one of the funniest things I found, I think it was craftbeer.com, did a, uh, a nice release article on April 1st <laughs> uh, about the, the origins and the recognition of it being a, a BJCP style. Uh, so obviously that was some satire, but it was, it was a pretty funny little article that they put in. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's all, it's the popular rage right now. It's when you talk to the fickle drinkers that uh, a lot of the mass consumers happen to be at this point, uh, that is what they're looking for. I actually walked into a local beer proprietor uh, this afternoon in my area and uh, asked the kindly gentleman who happened to be the uh, owner behind the counter if he he had any available, and he just let out a nice big sigh. (laughs) Nice. Uh, But he he directed me in the the right way. I got some actually. I got some too juicy uh, from from two from two roads right now. I just tried that last night. That was really good. Uh, so yeah, so I haven't I haven't had that yet. I've, they're chilling out in the fridge, uh, but I also picked up uh, the Matueka soft serve IPA from Gun Hill. Ooh. I haven't uh, had which that. I would, say, I would say could be a New England style IPA. Um, it's only three three uh, percent alcohol, so it's very low and easy drinking. I figured I'd start my my podcast off on the nice easy side of things. Yeah, uh, drinking on my. But it is fairly hazy. Uh, it is quite juicy, as the descriptors tend to roll out. But uh, it's a very, very good IPA. So I'm sure you've had the heady toppers and the trilliums. I have had them, yes. Uh, so how do you feel about New England IPAs? Is it is it up your alley, or is it? As a person who makes beer, and as an avid beer fan, uh, a drinker before I was a producer, uh, I feel that. Anytime you make a beer, you want it to be appealing in the marketplace. You want people to buy it. Uh, that's, that's kind of the, the whole reason why you do it. If you make beer that tastes really awesome, but no one really buys it, then you're not really doing a good job of making beer. Yeah. Um, no, matter, no matter how good it happens to be. If you can't sell it, you know, then what are you going to do with it? You're going to drink it all to your face. It's a good point. Um, you know, I also feel... In, and this is my personal opinion. I also feel that a lot of drinkers are fickle right now. Uh, they There's no real brand loyalty so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that my old man, you know, he would go and pick up the same six pack of the same beer, you know, every week uh, and then come home and drink that. And he was a very brand loyal drinker. Yeah. And uh, people, people don't tend to do that so much anymore. Uh, they drink all over all over the style guidelines, whether it be sours, New England IPAs, uh, super bitter, bitter, hoppy double IPAs, or there's people who like those nice crisp Kolsch and Pilsner beers. Yeah. Um, you know, as for my personal opinion, um, being a producer of beer, a person that's in the industry, it, it, 
is a little strange for me uh, <laughs> because everything everything that I was taught was to not make your beer cloudy, uh, make your beer nice and bright and clear. And even if your beer is unfiltered, try and do the best of job of, of keeping it presentable and uh, uh, we'll say sexy and appealing to the consumer. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people's opinions of what is desirable has really changed. So that being said, um, it is a little bit of a palette shift, uh, and it's a little bit of, uh, change in expectations, um, both of the people who are making the beer and the people who are consuming the beer. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess I'm on the fence. I, I, I like it. I've had some good ones. I've had some bad ones. Um, personally, a lot of times when I look at a beer being a brewer, uh, if that beer looks like a yeast pitch, uh, I usually have the, the initial visual reaction of being like, oh, this may not really be that good. Uh, but then, of course, if the aroma is on point and the flavor is there and, you know, it's obviously not a yeast pitch, uh, then you know, it's perfectly drinkable and I've consumed a few of them. Yeah. Yep. Nope. That it absolutely looks like a yeast pitch. <laughs> uh, the two roads last night was great. I drank it right out of the can. So I didn't, uh, I didn't get to take a look at it, but you said you've, you've made a couple for your, for yourself or for others or for. Um, one of the first beers we did at Community Beer Works this year for 2017 was a New England style IPA uh, called the Electric Death Machine. Nice. Um, so that was that was kind of my first uh, full production run of something of that style. So I've done that. I've kind of tooled around with it uh, in some smaller batch things for my own personal consumption, and obviously tweaking and playing around with the recipe a little bit. Uh, we will be releasing a beer for uh, Osteria 166. Uh, it will be a New England style IPA. It just, uh, we've just is in the bright tank right now. Uh, but I took a couple, um, some samples from that, and it is definitely a hazy glass of orange juice. Nice. Uh, so how I, strong I is it? Um, that beer, I'm not quite sure off the top of my head. I want to say it's right around five percent. All right, no, it uh, sounds good. You know, I am impressed sometimes that I can. It tastes like orange juice and has so much alcohol in it. Right. Yeah. That's that's one of the big things too. And um, it's it's really funny because when you, you stop and you think about that, people are looking for you know when you say IPA, you would expect something that's exceptionally bitter. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people who are producing these New England style IPAs, uh, they are going to the opposite, which is also recently come to some notoriety in some beer press as zero IBU IPAs. Yeah. Uh, which for those who aren't familiar, uh, IBUs are calculated through uh, basically a formula. Uh, if, you're not, if you're not having your beer tested, you can actually calculate them out. Uh, and it's just this formula that states if you're using X amount of uh, hops at uh, y amount of alpha acids, depending upon how long you're boiling them, uh, that then creates your isomerization uh, of those alpha acids. So you end up with isoalpha alpha acids, uh, and then those result in your bittering units. Uh, so if you have an IPA and you're not necessarily boiling your uh, hop load, if you're using a large whirlpool addition or hop bursting, which is very popular in the past few years, mm -hmm. uh, you can technically... Uh, make a zero IBU calculated IPA. 
Uh, I'll put it out there right now that one of the IPAs that we produce at Community Beer Works is technically a zero IBU IPA. Uh, all late edition hops, uh, all in the whirlpool. But it is still, you know, obviously bitter on the palate, but you could technically say in a calculated form of IBUs, there are none. Yeah. Um, just like there's a lot of beers out there that are like, oh, this is a 112 IBU beer or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are usually calculated numbers. They're not um, they're not actually tested uh, bittering units. They're what they should calculate out to be. Okay. So, so hop bursting, which you mentioned, what describe hop bursting? Uh, hop bursting is using a large uh, amount of hops very, very late in your process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so normally you think if you're making a beer, uh, you're going to use a bittering addition at 60 minutes. Uh, some people will then do a flavor and aroma addition, you know, maybe, you know, halfway through your boil or within the last five minutes of your boil. Uh, hot bursting is a technique where you would take a, you know, almost double or triple the amount of hops that you would use for your other additions and then basically adding them very late. So you're using either a strictly a whirlpool addition uh, or you're doing a hop stand. Uh, most of that tends to be after flame out. Okay. So you're, but in order to get any sort of predominant, you know, flavor bitterness actually that you're taking, not, you know, IBU bitterness like we were talking about. Yeah. Um, you have to use much, much greater volumes of hops to kind of achieve that. And you want to get your, your wart below boiling, but still above 180, right? That's yeah, right? usually, usually people, yeah, usually people will shoot for around uh, between 180 and 190. Okay, uh, I've seen some lower numbers for that as well. Uh, there are different other compounds. So everyone is familiar with alpha and beta acids, mm-hmm. uh, but there are other chemicals like myrcene and things like that that denature at a much lower temperature. Uh, so obviously those iso-alpha acids do not start to really break down and denature until you're getting right around boiling. Uh, but some of those other more volatile compounds that are in different uh, hop strains can denature at a much lower temperature. Uh, so usually people will do a dilution or they'll uh, do a nice little whirlpool to kind of drop the temperature uh, and then add a large amount of hops later in like a hop stand or something like that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I was doing a hop stand upside down. People told me I didn't actually have to do that part, the upside down part. You, you don't. You no. don't. Nope. It's, it's more fun that way, but <laughs> you really don't have to do it that way. Uh, it's a lot harder to drink your beer if you're upset. Oh yeah. Nope. Comes out the nose that way. So when you're making, uh, a new England IPA, what are we looking for ingredients wise, uh, as opposed to a typical IPA? So obviously, um, everyone pretty much knows how to make an IPA, or I would assume that most people who are listening to this podcast uh, and are familiar with this style, uh, have made, you know, an American style, uh, traditional American style IPA, whether it be yeah. West Coast or East Coast. That's a good bet. Um, the, the big variance for that ingredients wise, if you're looking at your grist uh-huh. uh, or your grains that you're using, uh, a lot of times you're going to want to add something that would actually cause haze in beer. Okay. Uh, so you're kind of forgetting everything that you know about clarity <laughs> or trying to make your beer bright. Uh, and so you'd probably add a larger amount of some adjuncts, uh, whether it be uh, flaked barley, mm-hmm. flaked oats, uh, some wheat, whether it be malted wheat or unmalted white wheat. Um, these tend to be very uh, proteinaceous 
uh, grains that will leave a little bit of a haze. So obviously, if anyone's seen the hazy effect in a hefeweizen, yeah. um, that is not only from the wheat, but uh, from the lower attenuation yeast strain. Um, but when you're looking at the grist, you would probably want to put in a substantial amount of oats. Uh, like when I made mine, I used uh, oats and wheat. Um, there is the big thing out there where people are saying that they're adding flour. Yeah, I've uh, heard that. Some sort, of, uh, some sort of starch. Uh, I really don't recommend that. Um, please don't. Uh, I don't really want to drink it if it, if it contains <laughs> flour. Yeah. Uh, and there's other ways that you can get that haze without really going that route. That's kind of your bare bones, don't know what you're doing. I just want it to be cloudy kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but at that point, you're making more of a dry hop bread dough, I guess you could say, if you're doing that. Then <laughs> dry hop really, bread dough, I like that. Yeah, more, more opposed to, to making a cloudy beer. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, any of your traditional clarifying agents be damned uh, right. at this point. So, um, you know, if you're using Rolflock uh, or Biofine or, or anything like that to to make your beer clear or as clear as it can be for unfiltered beer, you would not want to include those uh, in your recipe. Okay. Um, that also being said, uh, if we're going to talk about ingredients all the way around, if you're going to make your yeast selection, uh, whatever yeast that you're really looking for in a traditional IPA, whether it be like Conan yeast or dry American ale yeast, yeah. um, a lot of people are kind of, phasing those out and going with something that's a little less attenuative. Mm-hmm. Um, people that I've talked to and the, the one that I did, we actually just used USO five. Oh, okay. Uh, American. Uh, that's what we did for, for mine. Uh, if I had to go back and do it again, which I probably will. And I have played around with a couple other recipes. Uh, I preferred to go with uh, an English ale yeast strain. Uh-huh. Um, mainly because they are slightly less attenuative or not. I shouldn't say less, uh, less flocculent. I'm sorry. Spoke. Uh, so they're a little less flocculent, so you get a little bit of yeast that remains, uh, you know, in your beer. Yeah. Uh, and also, if you're really looking for those big fruity flavors, that juicy, juicy that everybody wants, um, you want to have something that kicked off a little bit of uh, some ester production. So you can actually use the fruitier ester production of those yeast strains along with uh, those big tropical juicy varietals of hops to kind of play nicely together to to balance that juice bomb flavor out there that I guess everyone's looking for. Okay. So yeah, the yeast yeast being fairly important there. Although you were saying with the USO five, so you shouldn't shouldn't let the yeast hold you back from trying. No, you shouldn't. And, you know, if you're out there and you're brewing your own beer, that's the whole reason why you're doing it. Uh, you should play around. You should have fun. You should experiment with your recipes and uh, you should experiment with your ingredients. And that's the whole reason why you're making your beer is because you want to get something that you can drink that you want, uh, as opposed to being held to the bounds of uh, all of the major beer producers and manufacturers. That, yeah, for sure. You know, you can find so what are you doing in the in the realm of hops? Are you looking for particularly tropical or citrus hops, I should say? Um, I I went more, like when I did mine, I went a little bit more on the free side. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm a huge fan of the combination of Eldorado, Mosaic, and Citro. Okay. Um, just because, obviously, you get that nice citrus character from the Citra. Everybody loves Mosaic. Yeah. Like, everybody loves Raymond. Everybody <laughs> loves Mosaic. Um, and then I am a huge fan of Eldorado or Amarillo. 
when it comes to be more of a fruity, juicy characteristic, especially in late editions. Yeah, I've never used Eldorado hops. How similar are they to Amarillo? Uh, which ones? Uh, Amarillo and Eldorado? Yeah. I'm looking um, them up right now. Uh, usually the big variance you'd find is in Alpha. Yeah. Eldorado is 14 to 16, it says. Yeah. So that's, that's the whole thing. So you can get, uh, if you're going to use a late edition, like within five minutes or so, you can still get a decent amount of bitterness using that, that very high alpha. Uh, but they can be quite fruity and dry hop and uh, you know, notes of pineapple and things like that. So, Oh, nice. All right. And then are you going to want to uh, add them towards the end generally then? Uh, when I did mine, I did strictly Whirlpool edition. Uh, so I did uh, no Whirlpool. No bittering at all. No bittering at all. Okay. Yeah, everything everything was strictly Whirlpool. Uh, and then another hint that I can, can put out there for you, um, there was a really funny discussion that the brewers were talking about on some local forums about double dry hopping. Yeah. So what I've read, uh, and this may not be completely true in all facets, it's just kind of some of the research that I've done. Um, a lot of people when producing these styles of beers will actually add their hops uh, right as they knock out into the fermenter. Okay. Uh, and before fermentation. Brewery, yes. Uh, right. Right. Even before your primary fermentation begins. Uh, now, there are compounds in hops. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into chemistry. Uh, That's be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going to keep it simple. <laughs> uh, so there, uh, there are polyphenols that exist in pretty much every variety of hops out there. Um, the big thing is if you use a large amount of these late edition hops, a lot of these polyphenols can kind of hang out and sit in solution. Uh, now, traditionally, brewers wouldn't want to add hops um, if you're dry hopping until after primary fermentation had finished. Yeah. The uh, reason for that is you are losing aromatics um, to your primary fermentation. Mm -hmm. So as primary fermentation goes in, high chorizin comes up, um, a lot of CO2 is produced. That CO2 then goes up into your blow-off bucket or in your airlock. Uh, however, a lot of those volatile aromatic compounds that are in those hops that you'd like to keep in your beer uh, also are removed with that uh, expenditure of CO2. So, you know, traditionally, if you'd say you're dry hopping before primary and making a traditional IPA, a lot of people will say, well, why? You're, you're losing a lot of those aromatics and things like that during yeah. that primary fermentation. Uh, the big reason for that in this style of beer uh, is a lot of those compounds, those polyphenols, those other oils in your hops, uh, they will basically stay in solution and kind of, I guess you could say, stick or, or hang out with um, your yeast cells. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of that stuff that you would lose if you were using some sort of uh, fining agent uh, or a prolonged cold crash or cold conditioning, uh, a lot of those tend to hang out and stay in solution with some of those active yeast cells. Okay. Um, usually at that point, if you're doing traditional dry hopping, uh, it's post your primary fermentation. A lot of that yeast is taking its nice, you know, well-deserved uh, re reproductory nap, I guess you could say at that <laughs> point. Uh, so they're all kind of hanging out at the bottom. They've done their job. Uh, your beer is pretty much mostly, if not completely attenuated by then, where you're adding your dry hops. Uh, so adding them early, you do lose some of those aromatics, uh, but that's where you would do your double dry hopping or then dry hop again, um, 
where you normally would. So you're dry hopping before your primary fermentation actually occurs. And then you're dry hopping again after your primary fermentation has finished uh, as you normally would. So you're still re- you're retaining those aromatics uh, and those flavor compounds um, post uh, fermentation. Okay. Post primary fermentation. So then I've, we got to get into water. Um, water, I wouldn't really change too much. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, obviously, you want to Burtonize your water. Um, that tends to be very good practice when you're making any sort of IPA. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally didn't really change my water profile too much. Uh, you know, I did some gypsum, some Epsom, uh, as I normally would whenever I produce an IPA, just kind of give myself a little bit more of a crisp hop character. Yeah. Um, there is a bunch of studies talking about slightly, uh, sulfide in water. Yes. Um, giving you a little bit more. Uh, more of that hop accentuation. Um, I tend to stay away from that in large amounts. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that is an option. And it is it all the, uh, dependatory upon the flavor profile that you're really looking for. Um, I still like getting a decent amount of bitterness, and I like that burtonization of my water. Uh, that's what I'm traditionally used to doing, so that's kind of where I roll. Um I'm not saying that's always the best case scenario and everyone can make their beer differently. Yeah. Um, but I, I like to keep it fairly simple. But you've liked the way yours has turned out, right? I did. I, I was right. very happy with it. Um, I, I, the second time I did it, I upped my adjuncts just a little bit, add a little bit more oats uh, to it, uh, just because even though I did not filter and I did not clarify uh, the cold crashing process, I did notice that as the beer started to age, uh, like when we're looking at like a week or two or three weeks out of the actual packaging date, uh, it did clarify a little uh-huh. uh, j- just because of that cold crashing, um, that cold conditioning. Um, we did another IPA for our anniversary party, the any IPA. Yeah. Uh, which was kind of a kind of a take on that uh, electric death machine recipe. Um, but that ended up coming out fairly clear, even though we didn't filter, um, you know, we didn't add any sort of findings or anything like that. Uh, but we did find that uh, when we were making larger amounts of it, because it was for our anniversary, yeah, uh, we, we pumped out a lot of it. And so some of the batches that had been cold conditioning for a little bit longer did slightly clarify. Uh, there was some bright beer to be had, but for the most part, it stayed fairly, fairly hazy. Well, thank you again. And I'll talk to you soon. Hopefully, I'll see you soon. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for having me back. All right. Have a good night. You too. Take care. Because you-